0: What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? Anarchy! Anarchy! I don't even know what that means, but I love it! Anarchy is, and always has been,
1: the best way and the only morally sensible way to run the world.
2: Cool. It's not just cool. It's the intersection of life and politics,
1: activism
2: and action. There's only one way to get power. Organize all the workers together, one big
1: union. And the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war, war against the capitalists.
2: Come on, it's not
3: criminal to be an individual.
2: It's not criminal to be an individual.
3: How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be on a riot,
1: buddy.
2: I'm escaping. The one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!
1: I was a victim, too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were socialists. Oh, Oh my
0: (sighs) God. (sighs) So, welcome to The Three Left Show. We are a program that covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy community ownership, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tenancy left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of a socialism, an anarchism, an ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Now, first order of business, let's call up my co-host, the homegrown syndicalist. Let's see if he's ready via Discord. I'm in. Hello. Yes, you're coming in. Let me bring you out.
3: I can hear you too.
0: Yeah, welcome to the show. We are all, we're all we're live or cook we're cooking.
3: I just started streaming. I like that we've kind of like gotten this whole calling in thing sorted out. Like we've worked out most of the kinks in it.
0: We're we're building our rhythm. Yes. Exactly. Um and then the rhythm of uh, playing music clips and whatnot. So uh I just wanted to start with uh, the fun bits, I suppose. This episode is going to be about China, um, but first, let's, yeah. let's start lighter. Um, why? What relates? My feed has been flooded with sitting Bernie. Homegrown. Yes. What? What about that picture relates to you? What do you relate to? I. That?
3: Well, it's an entire mood, like the idea of just looking around and seeing the absolute state of things and resign to fate
0: sort of thing where it's like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm still a Senator. I didn't win the race. I completely boshed it. Um, Like I
3: remember one of the first ones that I saw that I felt really spoke to me was um, it was someone saying Bernie looks like the inauguration is part of his day. Like, but not his whole day. It's one of the things on his to do list, but he's got other shit to do that day. Like
0: mm-hmm. Watch your watch your uh, swearing. Oh, I oh. Gotta, get, gotta, gotta get you early on that. Citation there. Demolition man ticket print. What I see is us being, you know, a uh, New Yorker, upper well, upstate New Yorker Jews is when I'm waiting and i'm sitting and i'm and i kind of slide down into my seat that is how i sit yeah that is it's not the style that like some people focus on the mittens some people focus on that but yeah the the resignation uh that's a good point there but it's like that yeah yeah exactly like i'm waiting for the bus it's not my day it's something i have to do to get to where i'm going now it's unfortunate that I feel that people are still kind of pouring their feelings and their mood into the Bernie or using Bernie to express it. You know, I'm once again asking for you to be part of something bigger than yourself, you know? Yeah. And, and that, uh, and then you're left with kind of say commentators like Jimmy Dore going like, like, you know, we want him to be the leader. He's not the leader. Cause when it came down to it, uh, he was still a follower, you know, Biden, my good friend. And, uh, where with Clinton it seemed to be a little more adversarial in 2016 you know the results in our county because i was just looking at the election results for an article i plan to write just outlining that it seemed a little closer you know it was kind of a, more of a 60 40 split in our area between clinton and bernie right. this time yeah. it was 70 to, like 25 with a with That's a like- smattering of percentages where the third place was Warren, and then before and after her was Buttigieg, then Yang. You know, it was a blowout, though. It was more similar to the results where you have a progressive dem or a social democrat running against an establishment dem in our area, where it's usually 80-20, 70-30 is the best you can hope for. You know, like when it went to green and the green represents progressive politics, that's the result we kind of end up with. So, my article is more about like how we're a one party state. We're the Democratic Republic of Albany. You can only do politics through the Democratic Party. And and that makes it a very uh, narrow politics because, you know, that organization or or the institution of the Democratic Party is still, it's just completely bourgeois, professional. And you have to act like that if you're going to get anywhere. It concerned me when I saw, like, kind of up-and-coming black progressives in Albany. They were kind of one of their posts. I mean, they make all kinds of other BLM posts, right, sometimes radical-sounding posts. But then they do a post that just looks like any other conservative bourgeois, you know, Democrat, where it's, like, complaining about pointing out the vandalism in the neighborhood, and their pictures are, to me, rather innocuous, tagging on the back of signs, on the back of signs. I mean, one of them was yeah. on a sign, but it was like a private no parking here sign. It wasn't the bus signs. It wasn't the sheds. It wasn't anything of that's used. It was it was vacant buildings, and yeah, and and they're kind of like scratching their heads or or they're stroking their chin about like, oh, how bad it is that they don't have an outlet. They don't have other outlets. I'm like, well, yeah, only like five people can get the mural painting grant. Um, and filling out that application itself is like a professional task. You need to be a professional to fill out a grant application. Or rather, that's like a specific job I've applied for and didn't get, where like grant writing. It's like its own skill set. Anyway, um, the other thing I want to point out was the whole like um, totally different subject more or less. Uh, I saw the story of how in Portland during the inauguration, I think the only actual militancy, was not from the right, the overblown warnings and overpreparedness for right wing, another further right wing insurrection, even though it was on the seventh or sixth that they completely blew their load as far as the energy and the money they would spend to travel to a uh, capital. The only right. minutes in action was in Portland by the Black Bloc, by Antifa. And uh, what was the target? The Democratic
3: Party office.
0: Um, yeah. So like, uh, oh, I
3: saw my pep dad comments or make a post about that. And he was like, what's wrong with people? But when he posted it, I was still in my, uh, still in my post, Ben. I've been released from the Facebook gulag. I'm free.
0: Yay. Uh, who, who was, um, who was posting on it? My stepdad.
3: Okay. So he is like very solidly like liberal, liberal. Sure. Like,
0: oh, uh, like uh lawful liberal.
3: Like, I'm pretty sure, like... On the, on I don't the know D&D chart. On the, uh... I'm not sure if he's, like, a has feelings on Clinton, but I consider him in, like, Clinton fear.
0: Right, the milieu.
3: And, yeah, that's where...
0: The... Well, see, at. the thing is, like, they're kind of the audience... Well, see, here's, like, the, there's a question, and we covered this in the one of the Anarchist Direct Action episodes, of, like, gotta know, like, what's your audience when you do property damage, you know, or or something, direct action like this. And it can be kind of various, but I saw an example of how, like, you have QAnon people that actually, like, it really turns their worldview around or confuses the mindset, like, the mind tunnel that they're in, and it breaks the mind tunnel of various people where they're associating, especially on the right, Antifa with Biden. And when left-wingers like us attack Dems, not just on Facebook where they're not going to see it because... They're not in our media bubbles, I guess. But we do something physically that gets news coverage out in the world. That actually shows up on their radar somehow, and whether through Fox News coverage or something, or Newsmax. and And then they actually see it. They see what we're saying or what we're doing, right? It's not through our channels or whatever. It's through their channels. And it's something that really can't be misinterpreted. We are attacking Biden. We are saying no to Biden in a physical, you know, violent way. And they don't know what to think of it because it, it it throws a wrench in their mindset where at the very least they're associating us with the status quo, that we're getting uh, checks from Soros and all that stuff. So if we can at least disrupt that, I would call it effective. Now, uh, it probably doesn't disrupt, I mean, I don't think liberals believe that anyone to their left is on their side. That's why they suppress us. Um, And make sure we don't have our own party, or if we do have one, that we stay off the ballot.
3: that we are the threat, and they are the most reasonable version of whatever can come out of us. So they think uh, that the left, it's fine, their ideas are neat and all, but they're too extreme. We're the the most moderate ones, we're the ones that can...
0: Well, it's, it's it, sometimes government. it's not even a matter of disagreeing. It's not even a matter of disagreeing, but that like, look, I agree with you that we need to tax the rich and tax them uh, at a high rate, but that won't fly. That's not bipartisan enough. That's too aggressive rather like it won't we won't pass. It won't pass. We should only take public positions on things that would pass through Republican Senate or a split Senate. As we have now, uh, which is, you know, it's like it's like they don't even disagree with us. But of course, that doesn't matter then if you agree with us. If functionally you're stabbing us in the back or you're holding back, pushing further because it's totally misunderstanding what politics is. It's not optics; it plays a part, but it's power. Power is the main thing. And I right. think something that, and this will, I swear, this is good. This is okay. So remember that as the bookend here. We'll come back around to that as we talk about China. I'm going to stop. Uh, I now stop using the Trump voice when I say China. China.
3: Yeah, I um, like it. I find it endearing. It grounds mm-hmm. us in the actual shocking reality that we had to live through.
0: Hmm. We must not forget.
3: We must not forget. Never forget Trump.
0: So first, um, we're going to start with the almost like the long form disclaimer. Because in the second half, we're going to be, I'm at least going to be speaking more positively. Kind of, we're going to focus on the positives of China. And, um, but we're talking about, we're going to talk about the Uyghur issue now to not only get it okay. out of the way, but also talk and be clear that my position is actually that like, well, we're going to cover this uh, after this, actually, that, uh, the, the Marxist Leninist position of like, why, what do they say to justify calling China socialist? Right. Because from most definitions, our definitions, they're not, right? You could say every state in the world is still a capitalist one, it is just a question of how much they use their surplus towards social ends. While some st- uh, nations, like say Venezuela, have put surplus into, you know, state spending I'm talking about, into creating more worker ownership, which does qualify as socialism because it's always like how much of a mixed economy is it? But the way MLs work is that as far as the transition state of socialism, the communism goes. If it's worker owned, I mean, so if it's state owned, it also means it's worker owned because workers are yeah. running it, right? They're electing, Yo, I, I, they're they're appointing or electing their delegates to the government, so it might as well be worker. It it's it meets it's the definition really of worker
3: shocking. control. That, that is the exact same argument I have with, um, tankies as I have with ANCAPs. And the argument that, no, 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 the state doesn't need to be there in communism. It can just be the workers doing it themselves. The state, you don't need to have the state and they just don't get it.
0: Right. And that's the goal. I mean, if it's something that right wingers, at least on Fox News, that they're telling their audience that they're technically accurate about is that socialism is the transition state where a transition form where, where there is still a state. But the point of communism is then to end it, to transition away from it. So that's the kind of and com kind of position as well. There's kind of two usually media forms when it comes to China. Either you have Western outlets that are condemning and pointing China out as a threat of some kind and using circular arguments, or they are China aligned nation states, like say Pakistan. If you read outlets in Pakistan, they'll always be defending China. If you read, if you read the Hill or, you know, any outlet in America that's American and American owned, it's going to be attacking China.
3: Right. Yeah. Um, Of course.
0: But here's, there's a middle ground, okay? You can read something that is, uh, so here as a source on the Uyghur issue, the outlet for the Communist Party of India, all right? So you have you have a capitalist, modern, and adversarial nation-state to China. India and China are as much rivals as the U.S. and China. But they're the Communist Party there uh, at the forefront of organizing and the strikes and, uh, and all that, and agrarian reform. So this is their, so they're, they're probably the, and, and, and their outlets called Liberation, by the way. And, and they're Marxist Leninist. Uh, that's literally at the top banner. So I think they're the, probably the most balanced place you can go as far as like they have the same ideology as those that run China or uh, as okay. the CCP, but they are able to be critical and put it in the wider context because they're fighting their fascist government. So this is China's concentration camps for Uyghurs, in China's own words. past few years, there are increasingly disturbing reports about China's internment camps for Uyghurs in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region of China. There have been many credible academic studies as well as journalistic reports documenting the systemic incarceration of an entire nationality, ethnicity, in the name of a war on terror. China and the Chinese media have claimed that these reports are distortions by the Western media and the Western nations interested in discrediting China. Further context, um, when American media outlets report on this issue, they're using like mainly one source who is this evangelical dominionist who just wants to convert China to Christianity. And so very, not very credible source. So it's really, it's like kind of a, there's a, the straw man version where it's like we're attacking China with the worst possible like source, but then there are better sources and they are using China's government as the source. Information on the issue tends to be from ideologically polarized sources. So like so many issues in today's world, there is a tendency to take positions based on your ideological camp rather than facts. Every report in the BBC, New York Times, or Washington Post can be dismissed as fake news and Western propaganda, while likewise any report from Zhuhua or Global Times can be called Chinese propaganda. How should we, on the communist Marxist-Leninist left in India and the world, view the matter? Marxists have uh, have to look at a matter from the perspective of facts, nice principles. No one should choose to believe or disbelieve facts or support or oppose oppression based on camps, in the global world order, by Kamsi Means' side. There is no doubt that the U.S. and its allies have vested interest in isolating China and also in spreading a variety of racially motivated xenophobic material, which has many takers in India. But that cannot mean that those who are firmly opposed to any such U.S. slash NATO agenda make no independent assessment of China's policies and its treatment of dissenters, minorities, and oppressed nationalities. In fact, it is important that if right-wing discourse is attacking China, a consistent left must assess and critique China's policies from a firmly Marxist point of view. Let's skip ahead. On the current situation of the Uyghurs in China, liberation attempts to separate the wheat from the chaff by closely and critically reading China's own official public white paper on their policy and their official responses to leaked documents and other reports in various news outlets. We scrutinize these positions, So how does it hold up? So they go over China's white paper on Uyghurs.
3: So China's 2019 white paper on Uyghurs. After a period of denying all reports of the existence of internment camps for Uyghurs in Zhejiang region, China changed course and decided not only to admit the existence of the camps, but to justify and even boast of these camps as a successful model of fighting terrorism. In March 2019, the State Council Information Office of the People's Republic of China published a white paper titled The Fight Against Terrorism and Extremism in Human Rights Protection in Zhejiang. This position paper can be accessed on the official website of the Chinese government. This paper begins with a long discourse on terrorism and stating that since the 1990s, especially in the wake of the September o- 9/11 terrorist attack <laughs> in the U.S. Separatist forces aiming to establish Xinjiang as East Turkestan separate from China have been indulging in terrorist activities there. The paper cites several of these instances. I like the
0: word indulging, like it's chocolate. Let's indulge in a little too. terrorism.
3: <laughs> so Marxist-Leninist principles demand that we try to identify and address. The material and political basis for militancy, rather than blaming it on "quote unquote" outside forces or on "quote unquote" religious extremists. For instance, we remind our fellow Indians that the Indian state cannot be allowed to get away with the claim that militancy in the Kashmir Valley is a product purely of Pakistani or interference or Islamic extremism. There are genuine political grievances. That the Kashmir people have, and militancy is primarily a product of the refusal of the Indian state to admit or address those grievances. For militancy in Kashmir, Manipur, or Nagaland, there are historical and political grievances at roots compounded by Indian state brutal and repressive policy of treating entire communities in these regions as potential quote unquote terrorists. The Chinese government's paper on Uyghurs does exactly the same thing as what the Indian state does. Blame militancy on outside interference and religious extremists. Our August two thousand and two piece. All right. So it's uh, comparing what's going on in India to what's going on yeah. in China. And we could obviously,
0: you could just change some yeah. nouns and make it like Guantanamo Bay.
3: Yeah, it's just talking about how the state talks about extremists in order to get rid of and targets a minority. hmm And the U.S. does it too. The U.S. We does do it.
0: it too. We we do it to a lesser extent when it comes to religious minorities, right? But, but what they mention uh, the the Indians here is like, well, if you actually if you replace uh, uh, Muslims with black people then it's absolutely the same thing. They're all potential criminals, potential gang members. Yeah, so there's that. <laughs> in fact, no, that's in the next sentence, actually, so I'll, I'll pick up. Police and community okay. in the name of preventing crime. Are you, are you uh, Across the world, from black communities in the U.S. to Indian policies in Kashmir, Manipur, Nagaland, and Bastar, repressive states have labeled entire communities as prone to crime or terror. To justify intrusive surveillance and state terror against people of those communities based on their identity, not on crimes committed by them. Sabah Johum in Bashtir is one instance where the Indian state justified acting to displace and imprison entire Avasavi villages in the name of preventing Maoist terror. Ad Avasi is a uh, ethnic group of northern India. I think half of Nepal's population is under that banner. The white paper makes it clear that the Chinese state does much the same, treating the entire Uyghur population as prone to religious extremism and terrorism and justifying mass incarceration of Uyghurs in what they're calling re education camps, in the name of preventing terrorism. In this next set, uh, subheadline, they use the acronym UAPA. I'm assuming it's maybe the Indian Terror Law. Okay. Maybe it's like the Patriot. The Patriot Act on rights, let's call it that. So what is the ah. legal basis for this Chinese state to send vast numbers of Uyghur people to such camps? What is the legal basis for judging that a Uyghur individual is in need of re-education? The counterterrorism law of the People's Republic of China attempts to cover its own back by stating that no one should be targeted on the basis of any specific religion or ethnic identity. But this is how the government white paper describes the scope of the law under which persons can be sent by uh, people's courts to a de-radicalization center. This is a long sentence here. In the course of counterterrorism and de-radicalization, the local government forbids any organization or individual from using religion to split the country, spread religious extremism, incite ethnic hatred, undermine ethnic unity, disturb social order, harm citizens' physical or mental health, Hinder the implementation of the country's administration, judicial, educational, or cultural systems, or harm national security, national interests, public interests, and civil rights and interests. It prevents ill-intentioned people from using religion or religious activities to create disorder or commit crimes. Dianu.
3: <laughs> Dianu.
0: Yes. Because that was a very long list. Now, this is not as long as, um, say, the USMDAA, Military Authorization Act, which basically kind of says, uh, to boil it down, that if you are materially or morally supporting a terrorist organization, uh, you are liable to be scooped up by the uh, Department of Homeland Security Mm. uh, on U.S. soil. Mostly aimed at, you know, we, we have, we have what they're doing internally is what we have externally. But the, if there's a new domestic terrorism law that's passed in the next, next year, it will probably be the same thing, turning the war on terror and bringing it, actually bringing it home. It just, it just took 15 years. But I mean, we kind of like anyone who is, we're saying this is a slippery slope. It'll start with. Going, you know, only abroad, only abroad can the U.S. drone strike American citizens. Well, it's going to come home eventually.
3: You're absolutely right. I I had never really heard it put that way. But bringing the war on terror home is exactly what the future is going to bring. I'd never heard it put so well before. that, That was awesome. Thank you.
0: Well, it, it's, it's painful to be this clairvoyant, I suppose. Nearly everywhere, <laughs> nearly every word in this paragraph is vague and open to arbitrary and subjective interpretation by the state. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, there is no clarity on how the law distinguishes between spreading religious faith from spreading religious extremism. If a religious preacher advocates abstaining from alcohol, for example, is he spreading faith or extremism? If a weaker person speaks about Han Chinese majoritarian domination or imposition of the Mandarin language, is he or she guilty of undermining ethnic unity or disturbing the social order? Other questions follow. All in all, the counterterrorism law of the People's Republic is like India's draconian UAPA, or its predecessors, on steroids, a handy tool which empowers the state to surveil and criminalize the most innocent and ordinary of actions, especially if the said actions are committed by a religious minority or ideological dissenter. So where, like, you know, the whole, like, we're lucky to live in America because we have the First Amendment. And such laws like this, like, we state actors, like in the security state, they need to work really hard to work around the First Amendment. Their main tactic seems to be using, uh, part of it, is using the private sector you know, by, say, well, banning our speech online through because we're using private channels rather than... But then, of course, the let me back up. There's always the whole restriction of free speech in the public realm and the private realm, but just not in our own homes or maybe places of worship. This is where, like, okay, we need to, like, form a leftist church, like, literally be like a church. That way we actually have more legal protections. Because it seems like that's the only way you can really protect yourself.
3: (laughs) I love that. Yo, that's incredible. Wait, I think I have a religion that's already willing.
0: Well, I mean, I've covered the satanic temple exactly for this purpose.
3: Oh, yeah, you're right. No, no, that's true. These are atheists that started a religion, so they could actually
0: sue and act like, not just act like a church in the literal way, but they could have legal like protections as a church. And that includes a legal protection of abortion by making abortion a religious ritual.
3: I know. I I'm so happy about that. That's awesome. So
0: we kind of make building socialism a protected practice of our new religion, our church. Okay. Maybe we might have a chance. But Again, if uh, if it's – but again, if if the new if, – if, say, the security state American one kind of then classifies that as religious extremism, since building socialism is extremist in many eyes, we could still be targets. So maybe it, it's, it's a dead end. Yeah. The white paper is peppered with a disturbing number of references to how rural residents in Zhejiang have a tendency to become criminals because they are – are weak in the use of standard spoken and written Chinese language, slow in acquiring modern knowledge, and have poor communication skills. And thus such people are more inclined to be incited or coerced into criminality by terrorist and extremist forces. Uh, end of quote. Perhaps what is most disturbing about reading this white paper is that it is a document China has made available in the public domain. The Chinese state feels no qualms or hesitation about declaring such racist stereotypes as its official policy. This policy, terming the speakers of ethnic minorities' own languages as slow, non-modern, and poor in communication skills, and therefore prone to crime, is reminiscent of the Criminal Tribes Act in colonial India. Reading these passages, there is no doubt that the Chinese state's official policy seeks to humiliate and criminalize the language, culture, and entire communities of Uyghurs. Side note, Chinese state policy openly sees knowledge of Mandarin Chinese as a test of patriotism. To put this in perspective, if the Modi regime, if the Trump regime, let me change some nouns, if the Trump regime were an official policy document to declare knowledge of of English to be a test of patriotism, it could easily be recognized and resisted as a fascist policy of enforced monetization in this case Modi and Hindi uh why don't you read the next part there
3: so the white paper refers repeatedly to quote-unquote transfer employment as a job policy for the Zhejiang region it speaks of implementing the plan of transfer employment For 10 or no, 100,000 laborers in southern Zhejiang in three years, 2018 to 2020, having realized the transfer of employment of 17,000 people and transferring 8.305 million surplus rural laborers. Are you reading that number
0: right? It says 75,000 people. I thought I heard 17,000. Quoting them, having realized a transfer employment of 75,000 people and then transferring 8 million surplus rural laborers for employment in Zhejiang in the last uh, from 16 to 18, 2016 to 2018. So what do you pick up there?
3: The, uh, the question is, is this policy of transfer employment for labor? Because they're just moving people and the employers say, all right, you're moving there. That's where you're going now. And then the people, like, what? how much say do they have over whether or not they're there? Like, I will the tanky, or will the China person retort to the capitalist uh, statement that if they wish not to be employed there, they are free to leave. Is Yeah, is being theoretically free to leave, like, functionally free to leave. Because if you have absolutely no assets, no material, anything to fall back on, if you leave, you don't have a life. How do you survive? This is the basic leftist critique of private enterprise
0: to put it in like a our context yeah i feel constant pressure of like i'm not able to find say work in my field in my small city belt like rust belt city and i'm told that oh there's tons of jobs in the Sun Belt. you need to move to texas or florida or california i guess and i don't want to but as far as like if i want this type of career, or if I want to do well, I need to move. I need to pick up and move my life and leave everything behind. I find that a form of, you know, forced labor. Now it's not being picked up by the state and being transferred somewhere else. And then kind of I'll be arrested if I leave the factory. That's definitely a level up. That's a level beyond. Uh, A part skipped was pointing out that uh, there have been reports of China relocating thousands of Uyghurs from Zhejiang in Western China to factories across the country where they work under conditions that strongly suggest forced labor, producing for a variety of global brands, including da- omega- Apple, Nike, Amazon, Samsung, Zara, H&M, Microsoft, Mercedes-Benz, and Uniquo. I think there was also um, Victoria's Secret. Maybe I'm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's just one of many. Uh, that's just a small sampling there of the largest. Does China deny the authenticity of leaked documents?
3: Yeah. Now we come to the documents leaked, reportedly by someone from within the Chinese regime, to the New York Times newspaper in November of 2019. The first thing we did at Liberation was check whether China questioned the authenticity of the documents. The answer is no. A report titled "Western Media Report on Zhejiang Lacks Morality," The Global Times, the international version of the Chinese community pe- uh, party People's Daily newspaper, <laughs> seventeen November twenty nineteen wrote that the New York Times disclosed more than 400 pages of leaked files from northwest China's Zhejiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and maliciously attacked uh, attacked China's governance in Zhejiang. The use of the word disclosed suggests that the Chinese state and CPC are not denying the authenticity of the documents.
0: Reminds me of WikiLeaks.
3: Yeah, the same report merely blames the critical analysis of the said dot or the critical analysis of the said documents by the New York Times on Western public opinion use their value system to criticize the vocational education and training centers in Xinjiang. That's how they're describing it. Interesting.
0: They're not saying so that the, they're not, they're vocational education and training centers. Now, the thing that strikes me is quite, um, dystopian about all of this and that, like, this isn't just like a China. China bad China authoritarian model is that when it comes to democratic job jobs policy right what is it that um our you know most progressive politicians fight for they fight for job training and vocation centers and you know these our community centers are now like job hubs where people can learn how to code and and basically do all the things that these vocational centers generously speaking, do, um, which is to retrain people out of whatever context and culture they came from, you know, get them to speak right, uh, drop the, u- ubon- uh, urbanics and, uh, stop tag, you know, so, uh, let's turn tagging into nice murals for yuppies to enjoy is how I'm seeing the transformation, you know? Uh, capital, capitalistic, and 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 let's make, let's force everyone, not force, but uh, encourage everyone to be entrepreneurs and start their small businesses, and not uh, turn to socialism and other extremist ideologies. That's what I'm saying. Because like when the new community building in Albany is like, it's called the, like the South Campus Center, and it's basically a job training center. Um, it's not really. It's a place where classes and lectures can be held. But uh, in the last like in the year or so that it opened, I didn't really see any events there I would actually attend. I mean, there were cooking classes. It's things that are meant to encourage vocational training, whatever. I, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but what I'm saying is that it's towards a certain type of development that is individualistic and bougie. Okay. and not for everyone, and it's not going to apply to everyone, and it's not going to raise everyone out of poverty. It's going to raise just enough people out of poverty to say that this policy was a success. Yeah. That's the way I see it.
3: Yeah, the very notion of a quote-unquote Western value system, which is distinct from an Eastern one, is a racist and colonial trope embraced and regurgitated by right-wing ideologues in both the supposed East and West. The Indian far-right, for instance, denounces Marxism and communism itself as a Western value system. The report, after claiming that Zhejiang cities are now free of terror and crime, asks the question, How many people in the world will oppose such changes in their own cities and prefer to live in a so-called democratic and free society where extremism prevails and terrorism is rampant? Oppressive regimes across the world, including that of India and Kashmir, Kashmir, justify restrictions on liberties and democracy as a necessary sacrifice in exchange for safety, welfare, and development. We may recall the right to privacy verdict in India, which rightly observed that the right to refrain that the poor need no civil and political rights and are concerned only with economic well-being has been utilized through history to wreck the most egregious violations of human rights above all it must be realized that it is the right to question the right to scrutinize and the right to dissent which enables an informed citizenry to scrutinize the actions of government in the voice of the global times the chinese state effectively admits that Zhejiang, under their rule, is neither democratic nor free. But if you hold democracy and freedom to be vital components of any substantive safety, welfare, and development, the Chinese state dismisses you as being an advocate of a quote-unquote Western value system.
0: I think it's particularly uh, ironic that here in the West, the right will say that Marxism is a foreign Eastern ideology. Yeah, that communism was something of the East. You know, look at all the these Asian countries that are um, taking it up, while we in the West we love liberty and, and liberal democracy.
3: I feel like Germany has um, done enough stuff in their past that the fact that uh, communism's greatest writer person, it came from Germany, and so people could be like, oh, Germany, yeah, Germany's where the crazy people come. They did the uh, the Nazis, and they did the communists.
0: Zizek has and like Cidak makes jokes about this, of like where East or West starts, or where Europe and not Europe starts.
1: Another question for... Oh. No, 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 now you wait for one minute, because... Uh, it
2: Croat. Uh,
1: Terror. Uh, it's a compliment when it comes from you. I just realized that you... Here in front of you you have three representatives from the Balkans, I rest my case.
2: I protest, Slovenia, every Slovene racist will tell you Slovenia is Central Europe, not Balkan. But uh, it's my This old... is Europe. Yeah, but you this know is Europe so us. nice, and here you will agree with me how... I'm sorry if I repeat my old joke, but it's so true about the divisions of Europe that you said. You know, this is the Slovene nationalism. We are Middle-Europa, Croatia, Balkan begins. Croat will tell you, no, we are still Europe, Serb Orthodoxy is Balkan. Serb will tell you, no, we are Christianity, Europe, uh, uh, Albanians are. Really so Balkan. actually, only Yannis is from the Balkans. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. But then you oh, go the uh, other way. Our other yeah, Austrians, that, that Austrians will tell you no. Slavs are Balkan. We are civilization. Germans will tell you no. Austria-Hungarian Empire already barbarian. French will tell you there is something dark, barbarian about Germany. And finally, I prefer the British position. All Europe is big Balkan with Brussels, New Constantinople, <laughs> and we are the only let me
1: let me add to this let me yeah. add to this the eurozone started a different process this is a standard dynamic in the balkans that goes all the way up to russia but regarding western europe the moment the eurozone crisis began greece was the first domino to fall we went bankrupt first and then the irish started saying that they are not greece And then immediately after that, Portugal started saying that it's not Ireland. (laughs) Spain started saying it's not Portugal. France said it is not Italy. Italy didn't even get a chance to say it's not Spain. (laughs) And that also reminds me of a a vulgar but not completely untrue history of the eurozone. Tell it. I like vulgar
2: stories. Tell
1: it. Do you know why it was created? Because. The French feared the Germans. The Spanish wanted to be like the French. The Portuguese didn't want to be like the Spanish. The Irish wanted to get out of the British Empire. The Dutch had already become German. The Belgians were split and they wanted to be both part of France and part of of Germany. And finally, the Germans feared the Germans.
2: I thought you would say this because my answer is, and that's how I see, and I'm not just making fun here. I'm quite serious here now. The truth of your position for me was: no, we Greeks, and nobody wants to be the Greek. We Greeks are not Greeks. We are the only true Europeans. And you were that when you were finance minister. But let me put it differently.
1: Because I, I cut my teeth as a young person in this country. I'm a Monty Python follower. So, what does this mean? I don't believe you know you remember the scene, the standard scene? I'm not the messiah, oh you are the messiah. And no, I'm not the messiah, you're you, you do not need the messiah, you don't need to follow anyone. You are all individuals, and somebody said, I'm not. There is no such thing as the Germans. There is no such thing as the Greeks. Now most Greeks would probably disagree with everything I'm saying, or agree, but for reasons that I disagree with. There are Greeks that I loathe so much more than any German I've ever hated. (laughs) That any sentence which begins with, the Greeks think that, is analytically fallacious and completely misguiding. Because you have five Greeks, you get ten opinions. It is impossible to start a sentence with, "The, the Greeks think that. I'm sure the same thing applies here. So there's no such thing as the Greeks and the Germans and so on forth. There is yeah, a lot more divergence within entities. my country than there is between us Greeks and the Germans. And this is you know, it's not that the Greeks are the real Europeans. The real Europeans are the ones who understand that identity is one thing. Nationalism is something completely separate. That to be a true patriot, you have a true patriot supports his people or her people and criticizes their government until they deserve not to be criticized. And criticizes his own people when they are wrong. Of course. Of course. But, and, and then at the same time, one subverts one's understanding of what my people are. Are the Germans less my people than the Greek bankers and the Greek media owners that have been poisoning Greek democracy? I don't think so.
0: You know, and if you're in Turkey, they say they're, you know, Western and European. And it's those... Iraqis and, and backwards Iranians who are uh, truly not European and, and uh, civilized. You know, and because, Israel
3: also claims to be a Western country, too.
0: Oh, of course. And then uh, you cross the Jordan River and you're in the Middle Ages, uh, uncivilized right. barbarians across on their doorstep. Thus, we must give them another $10 billion. <sighs> Yes, <laughs> surrounded by extremists uh who hate their freedom and oh. gay rights that they totally—that
3: yeah, is literally um, what it was like when I went on birthright.
0: Yeah. Now, of course, our version of birthright, if we were to a socialist one, I'm referring to, is like to visit Cuba. Uh So mm-hmm. I suppose I should make plans to do that in the coming years. Because yeah, that—that's that, it, it, it. Was just a thought that came in my head because we have the Cuba Solidarity Committee, and they're always yeah. pushing like. Anyone, young or old, like you know, we we do annual Cuba trips. We encourage everyone to join us, visit Cuba. They're not saying it changes your life, but it's like come see socialism in action. You know, we we go we join a parade because there's always like large like demos there. Uh, we talk to the unions, and it's like it's it's sort of curated, but it's also I'm sure that, you know there's free days to so do whatever you want. You know, you do the tourist things. Yeah. The Thought Police. The leaked documents read as though they are pages from the dystopian novel Orwell's 1984. I also want to make a side note about how I just watched a Vosh video this morning where he gives a pretty good take analysis of the book, of the novel.
3: Oh, yeah. I saw that one.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, we both have that common experience there. Uh, His main point was, like, it's a psychological thriller. It's not really about authoritarianism. It's more about, like, what makes... Soviet Union and and the kind of the tendencies of like what, what made Stalin and Hitler, what they had in common, rather as not as leaders, but as what their organizations were doing was they weren't just authoritarian, but they were also like trying to control the mindset of their respective populations through propaganda, education and so on by making it all very centralized, bureaucratic. Which is something why you know freedom-loving Americans hate bureaucracy, even though you really can't do anything modern or big without bureaucracy. It was the the actual trendsetters of bureaucracy were corporations. They perfected bureaucracy, and it was states, uh, governments that then copied them. So people get that backwards all the time. So students returning the Zhejiang from campuses and other parts of China for summer holidays. So, you know, they go, they go to school in other parts of the country uh, as they're free to do so. Um, but they're dismayed to find their parents, grandparents, or other relatives missing because they've been transferred to other, like, in this work program. <laughs> the documents lay down instructions, and this is from the leaked documents. They lay down instructions in a detailed Q&A script for local government officials explaining the protocol for responding to these students' anguished questions. The first thing that strikes one is that the documents repeatedly refer to the camps as concentrated education and training school students. Naturally, this is a translation from Chinese into English, but China has not claimed that there is anything wrong with the translation. So it seems clear that China, in its internal documents, effectively admit that they're holding them in concentration camps. You just, you know, remove the word education. (laughs) The Q&A script makes it very clear that the persons are being detained in camps without having committed any crime for it. For instance, in reply to the question, did they commit a crime? Will they be convicted? The scripted reply is, they haven't committed a crime and won't be convicted. But the script repeatedly uses the dehumanizing language of lack of health, infection, virus, disease, and malignant tumor to describe the condition of the incarcerated weaker persons. It is just that their thinking has been infected by unhealthy thoughts. And if they don't quickly receive education and correction, they'll become a major active threat to society and to your family. It's very hard to totally eradicate viruses and thinking in just a short time. It needs to be dealt with like detox for drug addicts, unquote. The script warns that students, that their own conduct can affect the amount of time for which their relatives are detained. Family members, including you, must abide by the state's laws and rules and not believe or spread rumors and take an active part in collective life. Only then can you add points for your family member. and So you have to collect points, right, to be released. And after a period of assessment, they can leave the school if they meet course completion standards. Now there's nothing, well, if it's nefarious, then point systems for completing coursework to be released into, say, a workforce or a good paying job that's everywhere in our economy. So it's like, well, if this is bad here, it's bad everywhere. And we're bad too, because this is everywhere. It just doesn't have that. And you can't leave aspect to it. You know, there's just that extra level of incarceration, just taking it a little bit further. But I mean, as far as the 14th amendment and prison labor, That, I mean, it's just a matter of like arresting you for suspicious activity. Yeah. You know, and other charges. This has fallen upon black and minority communities first. This is not, and thus, and thus it's like, it's Han Chinese versus Uyghur, where in America, it's white versus not white. And that's white Mm. supremacy. In their case, it's Han supremacy, which is very anti-Maoist, by the way. The documents also prescribe strict surveillance and censorship of the students in their social media posts. So I just want to point, let's see, the last paragraphs here is to point out the Islamophobia and double standards. Remember when Trump instituted the Muslim ban, banning immigrants or refugees from certain Muslim-majority Muslim majority countries, associating those countries with terrorism? That policy was rightfully protested for its Islamophobia and racism. The Chinese state's documents display a similar Islamophobia. The Q&A script cites a question frequently asked by students about their incarcerated relatives. Why were Zhejiang residents being detained in camps for traveling to two dozen Muslim-majority countries, including Turkey and Saudi Arabia, using passports issued by the Chinese state? The reply, because they have visited countries where religious extremism is serious, very serious, and they may have come under its influence. The dangers are immense as soon as the buds of religious extremism appear. That's why it's really necessary to put them through legal system, education, and patriotic education after they return. The Global Times report cited above states that some areas of southern Xinjiang are sensitive to chaos and terror because they are bordered by Pakistan and Afghanistan. The double standards and hypocrisy of the U.S. when it comes to attacking China on the question of Islamophobia, civil rights, racism, detention internment camps are obvious, but the hypocrisy and double standards of countries like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey in supporting China's weaker policy are also glaringly obvious. We do not have to look further in China's own documents and its own propaganda organs to recognize that the Chinese state is holding vast numbers of Uyghurs in concentration camps subjecting the entire Uyghur community both inside and outside the camps to a forced indoctrination, surveillance, and censorship, and attempting to erase the identity and culture of Uyghur people. China has been touting its Zizhang model as a successful model of counterterrorism, which the world should adopt. Certainly, Narendra Modi and his fascist regime in India would be happy to adopt China's Zizhang model for Kashmir and for minorities and dissenters, in the whole of India, lock, stock, and barrel. So that uh, wraps up our introduction to the topic, which we'll actually more get into in the next uh, hour as we kind of shift towards, okay, we got the whole, like, this is the bad, this is kind of why it's bad. It is an overly intrusive government, and it is. It does stamp down dissent and does kind of psychological... Things which our government doesn't have to do itself. It has all of its, not like they're not state organs, but well, private media, um, private contractors, our various private industries are all too friendly with partnering with our state and doing all of the various things. But it's done through the private sector, and that's what makes it
3: Mm. liberty oriented yeah, it makes exactly. it
0: a choice of what social media you use or something like that even though they're all technically under the same laws and rubric of capitalism so there's that okay we have another minute do you have any thoughts uh, michael
3: uh, i think it's interesting i really like the fact that this is an actual marxist leninist perspective on china because it's actually the ideals are close to the ideals that china claims to live up to and saying well does it really
0: yeah and 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 they are in government there um at least in various uh, certain indian states and they are a force a political force um they just get 20 percent of the vote but because they're more parletarian that actually means they actually get some political power Imagine that. Also, something that we didn't mention during the cryptocurrency show and was totally left out was that um, there is the Pirate Party in Europe. And there are Pirate Parties, um, which are partic- particular political parties that are for Internet rights and promoting cryptocurrency and using blockchain for a direct democracy. And they pretty much are the majority party in Iceland and uh and they also have significant presence in um uh, scandinavia denmark and in Germany they have uh whether they get like five percent of the vote but again that 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 guarantees them seats and they are the pirate party and they do use pirate imagery they're, they're it's a lot awesome. of, they're a lot of fun and um there there are small chapters in America, but they really are just like literally kind of working group sized like uh you know a twenty person group in Massachusetts. I tried to look for one in New York, but I think I tried to contact them, but they didn't, didn't seem to exist anymore since I didn't get back. After the applause. No, wait, but, uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, Can
2: I just uh, uh, say how I agree with him? When I said the Greeks, I didn't mean I totally agree with you, these Greek people or whatever. And then, you know, when you ask, but what are the Greek people, you know, what is the Greekness of the Greek people, you usually get some stupid proverbs and wisdoms. And I hope we all agree, if there is something which, for me, embodies total bullshitting catastrophe, are proverbs. You know, you know what are proverbs? Whatever you say, it can be justified by a proverb. Let's say you were to remain a finance minister and would make a risky measure. Let's say you were to succeed. There would be proverbs. Yeah, only those who risk profit and so on. Let's say you were to fail. There would be immediately proverbs to justify it. Like we in Slovenia, you have a, we have a vulgar proverb. You cannot urinate against the wind and so on and so on. So when I said Greece, I didn't mean any Greek internal national. I mean for what the Greek government and Syriza stood at that point in European political dynamics, if we still, which can be very doubtful, uh, I agree, think and we agree here, although we are more and more skeptical, that there is something potentially emancipatory in, I hate this notion, but I will use it, uh, 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 in European legacy, You, you, Greek government, Syriza, stood for it. Can I now just briefly Say something. It will be Can much more. Can he scary. say something? Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, he always does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh she
0: And we're back. Welcome back to The Three Left Show, second hour. Let me turn it back on. Are you there, Michael?
3: I am here. Great. When we talk about China... Go ahead. I have... Um, I'm sorry I didn't bring it up earlier. I've had a, right. an interaction that's been pressing on my mind, and I needed to talk about I'm going yes. to most likely make a... Share. Format. Share in the share, sharing circle. So I... Found the king of the trolls. Really? And does, does he have I, a minister? He does not have a minister, but he is something freaking. One. I was up until four in the gosh darn morning arguing with this guy. He kept was a him, huh? He was a proponent of Karl Popper, and his mm-hmm. whole argument with me is that he claims that class doesn't exist and that I have to prove the claim that class exists with sufficient evidence and that I am incapable of providing sufficient evidence. How does he define
0: sufficient evidence? That's an important thing.
3: Well, that's the question.
0: That, that That is the fundamental question of that, anyway. I mean, we... It can, class can be demonstrated in many, and many ways. So, there's, there's a lot of books on, um, but it's, it's, if you see all, if you read all of that and say that doesn't count as evidence or that is not sufficient evidence, what is sufficient evidence for him?
3: Exactly. So I give him my two cents basics uh, class analysis. I've gotten fairly good at explaining class yeah. analysis a pretty clear concise. just the basics a lot of times and so i gave it to him and then he says those are all hollow claims and arguments they lack real evidence you are incapable of providing sufficient evidence fail more and his whole thing is that Mm. he will copy sections of what of um like copy one of my sentences um, oh, oh, oh God. When they do that, when they
0: do that, I mean, like th- he was never operating under good faith. I mean, as soon as you, I mean, as soon as you use the phrase sufficient evidence, it's not really like we're having a conversation where we can just kind of acting in good faith means you don't have to read. You don't need evidence for everything you say or think that it's accepted that we're both thinking, feeling living beings. And that we can simply talk and share, exactly. And that we grow from the interaction. That we grow and from, like, the, interaction. We grow from the interaction. That we expect to grow from the interaction. And right. A, and a troll or a bad faith actor is not doing that. As soon as like it's like, oh, you failed. Nice try.
3: So yeah. the reason I should have stopped him the king there, the but trolls. well, the reason I call him the king of the trolls is he wrote a book where he, I guess, outlines the anatomy of the uh, how a troll works and how internet trolls operate and that he claims that he has uh, discovered the most effective strategy for dealing with trolls but we're the trolls right he's not the troll he's exactly and so then i told him okay i don't believe that trolls exist Give me sufficient evidence to prove that trolls exist right and what happened next he got real mad <laughs> oh,
0: uh-huh. well uh if you knew popper enough and and I don't know him enough though I did um so yeah actually unfortunately i haven't I didn't read popper but what I read what I own is a copy of a marxist responding to popper so, oh, Popper's, so Popper's book is called, um, is it, is it civilization? No, not, no, no, that's, that's Freud. It's, it's like uh, the free, Stuart the open Wonder. society. No, I think it's just called the open society. And yeah. It's a I critique, so. right. And it's a critique of, of socialists, uh, and Marxism right. and how freedom can only come from liberal democracy and, uh, and, uh, free enterprise capitalism, whatever. And, uh, And it was basically the, like, kind of anti-communism, like, oh, look at this philos- good philosophy that now we have philosophy on our side, says the anti-communist, uh, of the McCarthy era. And, uh, and the book I own is called The Open Society and the Open Philosophy. So basically, uh, half of it is basically explaining Marxism. Uh, this is the book that I kind of, if, how I used Marxism probably comes from this book as far as you know, he explains Marxism and why it's, I mean, just evidence-based thinking and how Marxism is like, well, materialism is the only kind of evidence that can really be observed. Everything else is just idealistic uh, high principles, I guess. You know, you start with the thing like freedom is good. I'm not going to define freedom. I'm not going to say what is evidence of freedom, but I'm just going to say that th- this is good and everything has to measure up to that kind of thing. And that's not so, maybe it's probably a mistake to say that's what Popper does, but you know, Popper is something to engage with, but also not something to wrap your whole worldview around because this is a 1940s kind of liberal philosopher. Right. And it's not like, don't take all your philosophy from one person, A. And yeah. So right. what's the title of his book though? Uh, the troll book.
3: Let me try to find it.
0: Okay. While you do that, I will read a and also a Facebook post, but it's um in the context of a story that we'll jump to about China and Chinese the CCP's policy. Actually, what is China doing in certain areas and how it fits into their governance structure, their economy? Like, just just go a little deeper into the subject instead of just talking about it like a monolith, China, the country. The country of a billion people, like it's a, mo- yeah, of course. Let's talk about it like it's one thing. That's totally fair. I say sarcastically. The task of, so this is from a Thomas Tartans. He's posting on the uh, populist left rising up page, or it's a group. And he basically explaining, like I said in the past, uh, in the last hour, what, how do, how does a Marxist today justify calling China socialist? Here is a kind of something of a, it's a good statement here. The task of a worker's state, state being the operable word here, is developing the means of production to the point where communism is, in fact, possible. If we read and accept Marxism, then for countries that inherited underdeveloped productive forces, meaning anyone in East Asia, which were exploited and kept semi-feudal through imperialism, this means that a period of capitalist development may be, and probably is, required. Just as the material conditions for capitalism emerge from feudalism, the material conditions for communism, or even socialism for that matter, develops within capitalism. China is reaching a point in their development, after 30 years of hypercapitalism. you could say, that they have developed where the capitalist mode of production has fulfilled its historic task and this is part of Marxism that there is like historic tasks. There is like a checklist you go through in historical development again, but that's, we call it essentializing a lot that there's like, you know, destiny of, of some kind in developing the productive forces, meaning industry, the 19th or not only um, productive forces, not only refers to the factories, but the infrastructure, the internet, uh, you know, the schooling, the school system. The 19th CPC National Congress marked the beginning of a new stage in socialist construction with GDP growth no longer dictating economic planning and more importance given to reducing wealth inequality and thus quality of life development instead. The result, the the recent fourth plenary session of the 19th Central Committee announced the development of modes of distribution in accordance to labor to compete Alongside the existing wage based system and the communist party has begun to exert far more influence and control over the areas of the economy not already owned by the state. So to translate this, uh, into, into not, uh, ML speak. So like for the last 30 years since the eighties, they've been operating, they've been developing all, the, all these capitalist enterprises. They have a lot of billionaires now and they've been using wage labor systems to, raise people out of poverty and urbanize. Uh, But the urbanization is from all of the kind of pressures of like, this is where the jobs are. If you're going to have a job to have an income that's beyond subsistence, then you need to go to the big, you know, mega cities that are now like there's 20 of them that are larger than New York. And they're saying that in their next five-year plan, because they go by five-year plans, you know, actual economic plan is like, okay, the last several five-year plans were all about growing the economy, right? Meaning in GDP terms. And as we've covered, as any leftist will say, GDP is a very limiting economic indicator. It's just saying how much money there is, right? If you have a 20 if someone has in a country has 20 trillion dollars and everyone else has 0 dollars, that is still a very big economy the GDP is 20 trillion dollars. <laughs> but if it's just one man, man has it, well, that's nothing. That means nothing. Uh, it means he controls everybody's lives. <laughs> and here they've been growing GDP for the sake of growing their industry, their capacity to have their own their own technology, develop their own vaccines, uh, make their own microchips, and all that. They can have a more independent supply chain, yeah. You know. And they don't have to basically make everything for Americans. They can make things for their own people. And in the, the next five year plan is, okay, now we're going to shift away from growing GDP. We've grown GDP enough. Like a growing boy, you know, you hit puberty or, or you hit age 18 and or 22 and you stop growing. If you kept growing, you'd be 20 feet tall or something and you die eventually. Like, and this is the steady state economy folks. They use the metaphor of a human body, you know, a body or a cell that just keeps growing indefinitely. We call that cancer of economy should mature, and stop growing at a point. And then it should then focus on different types of growth, spiritual growth, uh, mental growth, you know, whatever, psychological growth. And that's, in this case, it would mean we're going to shift towards more redistribution of all the wealth that's been created in China instead of just creating more wealth. As with, Back to the post, as with all countries that refuse to submit to the interests of capital, this has earned China significant dishonest criticism from the U.S., Except that to accelerate as we plunge into a new cold war, as the U.S. refuses to accept other countries' development away from billionaires control the state model that the U.S. champions as the hallmark of freedom and democracy. So this was attached to a story, which I will now read from the Asia Times financial page headline. CCP announces plan to take control of China's private sector. President she issues important instructions to all regions to boost party control over private enterprise and rejuvenate the nation. All firms will need employees from the party to boost law abidance and moral standards. Now this brings to mind a question of like how to effectively regulate mega corporations especially when the megacorp is many times more powerful and larger than, say, the Department of Agriculture or whatever government agency that's meant to regulate them, right? When And the thing that's occurred in the U.S. is you have the regulators are now basically ex-executives from the megacorps. You know, the Department of Agriculture, like Vilsack, is a Monsanto executive. And so all the regulations, if they exist, just won't be enforced. How do you enforce regulations from a state, from a government, when you have billionaires around who are richer and more powerful than than whole government agencies? You know, they have their own budgets. Well, it seems like actually having political forces inside the companies, right, similar to unions, but instead of, you know, a party as a political union, to... Basically be organized snitches, almost, or organized informants, but publicly facing of like, yes, I'm a party member, and when I'm around, you better be following the environmental regulation. And if I see dumping, I'm going to report it. I'm not going to go along to get along because I'm not just your employee. I'm also a party member, right? Maybe I get paid to do both. Hmm. Chinese President Xi Jinping, and the Communist Party's Central Committee have laid out a plan for a new era in which the party has better control over private business in China. So this is also kind of a response to leftist critiques of, like, how can you call China socialist when it has all of this private uh, corporations that are just as oppressive as American corporations, they're just as bad, uh, suicide nets, etc., etc. Well... Maybe the next five years will show that the Chinese government wants to do something about that. Because they said, look, we're, we're letting capitalism run ranted and pollute and overpollute, so we can build wealth and act on an even playing field with the U.S. Now that we've done that and we have an economy pretty much the same size, now we can stop doing that. We can shift to more equity. But anyway, more regulation of these um, of the capitalists. The plan was detailed in a 5,000-word statement and all regions and departments in the country have been told to follow new guidelines. This was the top story on Wednesday's CCTV Evening News and how the President had, caused important, had issued important instructions. It had a long-winded title, Opinion on Strengthening the United Front Work of the Private Economy in the New Era. The ultimate goal is for the party to have ideological leadership of private enterprise. The statement seeks to improve CCP control over private enterprise and entrepreneurs through united front work. Quoting, to better focus the wisdom and strengthen the private business people on the goal and mission to realize the great rejuvenation of Chinese nation, Baba. Xi's instructions were issued ahead of a conference today on the very topic. The party wants to see a united front between private enterprise and government business. Since the 18th National Congress in May, members of the Party Central Committee and Comrade G. <laughs> they They call them he called them G. so that probably shows the slant of this. They proposed a series of new concepts and strategies and adopted a series of major measures to guide and promote private economic united front work. They say these moves have achieved remarkable results as China's private economy has grown and diversified. The statement says these measures will bring about a great rejuvenation, okay overall, there are more than a hundred measures including guidance on selection of personnel to implement the measures. So here's uh, where the, there's a term that is used in Marxism or Maoism, which is socialism with Chinese characteristics. This is referring to the fact that um, China was in a different situation materially than, say, Germany or, or even uh, Russia. So when socialism is going to be implemented, uh, it has to be done differently meaning like we don't even have any industry in China, says Mao. So socialism with Chinese characteristics is we can't follow the, this orthodox line of developing this kind of industry or redistributing wealth because we don't have any wealth. Everything's agrarian. So the focus was put there. And when they did try to industrialize, they did it in really kind of bullheaded ways. And it's also important to see China as also a continuation where the CCP is a continuation of the Chinese nation state going back 4,000 years, which has always been bureaucracy centered and kind of a united of like all merchants are still just the employees of the state in, in a way. It's kind of a continuation of that. and That's kind of what it means Chinese characteristics is it's going to have these Confucian bureaucratic ways of doing things. Mao, as a person, as like, as a, as the head, attempted to kind of actually shift all of this, like, away from the cycle of bureaucracy and centralization. That's kind of what the cultural revolution was. At least it was his last attempt to get the next generation. Like, it was a rejection of everything that was old, meaning everything that was technically like what made the Han government, central government, what it was. And to kind of break away from that, to actually have more democracy or adopt more Western values, you kind of had to destroy the old stuff, the old values. This is, of course, a very damaging, though. So it's more of a matter of, like, what do you value more? It's interesting to see it that way. Uh, are you following any of this, Michael?
3: I'm following. Sorry. I found the book of the guy who I argued with until four AM last save, night. Save it till
0: I'm done with this. I'm not it's not too much longer.
3: Sure, sure. Uh,
0: so in order to thoroughly implement the major decisions and deployments of the party central committee to further strengthen the party's leadership of the private economic united front work and to better integrate the wisdom and strength of private economic personnel to the goal and task of achieving the great rejuvenation. They're all very repetitive in the statement. But to translate, um, it's that like private, the private economy needs to hire party personnel, um, either in the form of civil servants or just party members, which are, you know, I'm assuming they're given a stipend, to basically keep an eye on things, to integrate the public and the private economy, to make sure that there's really no distinction between the two. And that um you could say, this is true, like, oh, if there was any bu- building freedom in China, now they're squashing it, you know. I'm choosing to see it as like, well, this is just their policy of uh, making sure that, yeah, it's uh, the Communist Party is the, you know, workers' representation and billionaires are not. And one class needs to know who's in charge of the other, <laughs> You know, you don't want to build this bourgeois class of billionaires that can then eventually challenge the state apparatus. It's all quite in their own self-interest if you look at it. This is quite a turnaround. Previously, private business was not considered very worthy for party membership or influence, but it has gradually entered the heart of the regime. According to the new provisions, private firms will need a certain amount of CCP-registered employees, which is already a long-term practice in large private firms, but not smaller ones. So these cadres will make sure businesses follow the guiding ideology, guided by Xi Jinping's thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. That's the long-term term term for it. They will also guide private business people to embrace the latest CCP catchphrases, called the four consciousnesses, and strengthen the four self-confidences, and achieve the two safeguards. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of new, um, new speak there, but also more of a, you know, platitudes. Now this thing is, see, this this occurs in America, right? But it's done just mostly through social pressure instead of the political pressure. Because that's kind of what freedom in America usually refers to, is like free from political pressure, but not free from any other kind of economic or social pressure. But if social pressure is implemented through, say, the media organs, and the media organs are owned by capitalists with economic power, what's the difference? The duties of Cadres will include the duties of strengthening ideological guidance, guiding private economic figures to increase their awareness of self-discipline. So, uh, be less greedy. Uh, Build a strong line of ideological and moral defense strictly regulate their own words and deeds, cultivate a healthy lifestyle, and create a good public image. They will also need to continuously improve law abidance and moral standards of private citizens. So this, uh, to me, speaks to how, like, in liberal media, like New York Times bestseller lists, you have books by capitalists included, like... um the CEO of Whole Foods you know he has this conscious capitalism uh, ideology and these there was all these writers and and thought leaders um and they are called like you know influencers thought leaders they actually call thought leaders on uh LinkedIn and stuff and they you know they have the, they have these ideas of like ways to make capitalism better less greedy more responsible But there's always that missing step two of how to actually implement it, how to actually spread this out, right? It's the main method is the marketplace of ideas. We just put this out on the marketplace of ideas. And since we have great arguments and a great case for conscious capitalism, everyone should just adopt it or everyone eventually will. It may take 50 years or 30 years, but it will, there will be a change in culture. And that's apparently liberty and freedom, even though, of course, speech and what gets played in the marketplace of ideas is regulated slash determined by how much money you have. In this case, in China, it's like, oh, no, 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 we, we do have this conscious capitalism ideology. We're going to enforce it with actual law and political pressure with, with actual like this with our party members. Being like, we're going to mandate that you will employ party members and they will spread out conscious capitalism themselves. Because that's essentially what all of this, you know, for consciousness kind of is. It translates to like the triple bottom line. And all of these other ideas that are spread out, it's not, this is not all completely foreign stuff. We're in a global society, they're just talking about it differently. So like, how do you get all these corporations to do the triple bottom line? They all go to these, you know, little conferences and maybe they adopt it eventually. Or do they adopt it, but do they actually, you know, live it? Do they implement it? Stock, you know, the stock uh, holders will say something different. Uh, last line communication channels will be set up between private business and the party to report back on progress and other matters. So through all of that, Michael, uh, if you're if you're listening, does does all yeah. is all of that um, nefarious? Is it a little more gray? What what do you think?
3: I think that they're kind of using a lot of the same arguments that a lot of uh, Western imperialist countries use to uh, justify similar behavior, and. I don't know if I quite.
0: We don't know, dig but, this, right? Because uh, there's no direct democracy happening here, and
3: right? It's definitely not exactly. worker
0: ownership, unless you define it as the government being the workers, which, well, they're not. They're a bureaucracy. They're professionals. They're politicians. You know, it's it's not quite worker control <laughs> at all. But also, like, um, part of the whole, like, we built wealth. Now we can use some of that wealth for social programs because, as uh, Trotskyists or other leftists would point out, like, their welfare state's actually really sparse. But at the same time, then there is um, this next story from Reuters, okay, not a socialist or any kind of outlet. It's Reuters, very straight and narrow, from the business news section. Oh, anyway, it says it's a six-minute read. Don't you love that one? It says how long it'll take. So this That's is a nice. story called China expects to meet poverty alleviation goal. Sustainability is the next test. Now, the headline doesn't make it explicit, but sustainability of, like, pe- keeping people out of poverty, not that they're going to shift to environmental sustainability, though, that is in the Party Congress notes, too. Like, okay, now that we've... Grown and we're made by, and we've grown fast by making all this pollution. Now we can tamp down the pollution. Anyway, we are in control here. This is not a machine that we don't actually have the whole, the, we have the levers in our hands. Anyway, uh, reporting from Langshan, China, President Xi Z- Jinping beamed down benevolently from a poster in the new flat of unemployed, uh, Ji Gadi provided by the Chinese government as part of efforts to tackle poverty nationwide. The the posters urging residents to listen, follow, and be grateful to China's ruling Communist Party were common in the homes of the new state housing project visited by Reuters in September during a government-organized trip to the southwestern Sichuan province. You know, where all that uh, nice spicy food comes from. The first thought that comes to me reading that paragraph was like how like, um, the projects, you know, which is state housing, um, with subsidized rents and stuff is that like, Oh, people are so ungrateful that they get, they have this cheap housing, but they're always breaking stuff and messing it up. I'm like, hmm. I wonder if there are big posters saying, be grateful, be great. You know, be, you know, you should be happy with this anyway. <laughs> um, I suppose certain corporations have kind of posters that say something to that effect of like, you know, this is a great place to work and you should be happy you work here. China vowed in 2013, seven years ago, to eradicate extreme rural poverty by the end of this year and spent 524 billion yuan, but that translates to $77 billion, between 2016, 2020, to that end. Official data showed China's economy was hit by the coronavirus pandemic early this year, but has since seen a steady recovery. Thanks to the party, thanks to the government, thanks to General Secretary Xi, said Zhu Yi, a member of the generally poor Yi ethnic minority, I'm very satisfied. With over 90 million rural people lifted from extreme poverty over the past seven years, the government says it is on track to achieve its 2020 goal. But the success could falter if authorities shift priorities after declaring victory on rural poverty, say analysts. Once poverty alleviation is no longer a political priority, if funding from the government and state-owned enterprises dries up, many would fall back into it, said Alfred Wu, associate professor at uh, the Lee Li Yu School of Public Policy in Singapore. The government has said China will continue anti-poverty policies after 2020 but has yet to make an announcement. A state council official said the government, state council would be a state like the province of Sichuan. Said the government was rushing to come up with transitional policies. Hmm. Subtitle: Political Pressure. Jingu in his sixties moved into his new flat in the Yangshan region last year, a message reading gifted by the Sichuanese party and government on the chairs and wardrobe of his apartment, remind him to be grateful each day. The Sichuan government has invested 77 billion yuan to move 1.3 million villagers into new homes within the province, a policy replicated around China. So you could view this as a forced urbanization. As far as like, it's simply just more efficient to build all the block housing in these cities, then build like housing out in the rural areas for everybody so they can stay where they are, but have a nice house. We can only build nice housing or better housing if it's all in one place, which is kind of why is there urbanization in the first place when and why is urbanization and industrialization go hand in hand? If you're going to have an industrial apartment with a stove and a nice sink and other such things. It has to be in a city. It's too inefficient to do it out in the rural areas. It would cost too much, so much more transportation and labor costs, whatever. I'm just explaining the economics behind it. just It's not just a China thing. Under the scheme of Sichuan, because you could say forced urbanization is something that has been occurring in America our entire history. But it's just in the form of, well, you could build your own shack out in the rural area or your farmhouse. Or you can move to the city and have something somewhat more. Under the scheme in Sichuan, each household in the province pays uh, 2,500 yuan per person to secure a new concrete apartment or house, complete with hot shower and cooking gas, an upgrade from the leaky and windowless shacks many of them came from. China's poverty alleviation programs heavily rely on fiscal funding and civil servants for implementation, and let's say, raising questions about their sustainability. With the political pressure of meeting the poverty target, no longer having over hanging over them, and with other pressing needs to pay for social programs that would benefit the wider community, like say healthcare, local governments would be hard pressed to devote already tight budgets to the absolute poor post twenty twenty. This is coming from Wang Jun, chief economist at the Lender uh, Zhung Wang Bank. In addition to funding, the party has encouraged civil servants and party members to volunteer to tackle poverty in poor villages. Some 58,000, imagine the Democratic Party actually like putting out like kind of marching orders. Like if you're a Democratic Party member, you should be volunteering in your community. I I think that would be amazing. Um, In a way, like anyone who's in the Green Party, we encourage it right? Anyone who's active in the party is a volunteer right. of some type uh, or doing this uh, political work. That's not the case with the Democratic Party or, or rather our party system, our way of doing politics. It's really kind of a, you know, it's representation, right? It's just about being represented. So you have a class of professionals and then everybody else. And being a party member is just your name on a list doesn't mean anything in other countries it means something to be a party member it means you're actually committed like if there's a, a statement you're gonna you're gonna say yeah okay that's the position I'm gonna take it makes sense I'm a member of this party for many reasons we have the same values if they come to a position I likely agree with it or rather especially in a party oh I'm democratic I'm represented in the party the position they came to I had a part in shaping it some 58,000 civil servants have been mobilized in Sichuan Province, with each assigned one household to bring out of destitution. Now, compare this to where, in say in America, we have social workers, but they're assigned maybe easily 30, 40, 50 people. They they really don't have the time to actually help anyone, or they're so overbooked, or they cancel. It's it's a mess and and the social workers are just so overworked they can only help a few people at a time. Um anyway, but so imagine 58,000 civil servants, they're each assigned a household to help like bring out of poverty. Imagine if we actually had that kind of capacity. When the mission is accomplished, every poor villager should subsist above the 2020 national poverty line of about 4,000 yuan. That's a uh, 589 Per year. Official Dong Jequi uh, said on the trip that is less than half the 10,000 yuan monthly average resident uh, earned by a resident of Beijing. The number of registered rural poor in China has fallen. Okay, get this number. It fell from roughly 100 million in 2012 to 5.5 million this last year. But the so-called hardship postings can be challenging. Hardship posting is, I guess, being assigned to a family. With one Langshang official saying some workers have been killed in car crashes on treacherous mountain roads and saying another saying he hadn't seen his family for a long time. Fighting poverty takes up so much of my energy that I haven't seen my parents in two years, a second official said. So this is a different side of it. So if you just yeah. read like the first paragraph, I read about like forced like this is forced urbanization. They're just ordering people to move into these apartments. But then this paragraph is like, oh no no no, they they've hired like thousands of civil servants or their party members volunteering their time, and they are being sent out to talk to the people out in the rural areas. Some of them getting killed in the process, or because you know accidents happen. But they're actually literally going out like a social worker would going out to talk to them to talk about their situation and may, and of course encourage them to say like, Oh, there's actually jobs in the city. There's a a state factory that you could work at. You could make a good income and you'll get a good apartment out of it and you'll have running water. So because we can't run the, we can't run the pipes out here. You know, we can't do it. Maybe we could, like, fund wells or, or fund, like, good water pumps. I mean, there could be all of these better things to, like, keep people where they are and have a nice, robust rural population, you know. But, um again, industrialization encourages a certain mode. So the interpretivist in us would be like, you know, get rid of all this noise. But here's the job prospects part. Villagers moved by the government are offered night school classes. They're taught job skills and match with jobs in richer regions. After relocating from village houses and harsh living conditions to housing projects, half a million poor people in Sichuan found jobs in farming and in animal rearing. 200,000 were employed outside the province and 100,000 found jobs near their new homes. Sichuan Governor Ying Li has said, the government-funded social enterprises visited by Reuters on the trip showed just how reliant the poor remain on the government. It's not like the government's going anywhere. But their spending could, is their point. At a state-owned, a state-owned apple farm in Langshan, one manager said employees were guaranteed a certain amount of proceeds from the farm for the first three years they work there and secure employment but he declined to say if the farm was profitable or when it may break even. As if that's the only thing that matters, right? Nearby, poor women who sewed ethnic motif on socks at an embroidery workshop were secured steady income thanks to the government, which buys, quote, any number of socks they can sew. This was quoting the workshop supervisor. Jingu is living with his son, who was given a job after relocating, and is making the most of their new circumstances. And that's the that's the difference between, like, some people interview for a job. Like, I'm encouraged to interview or, like, try to get a job in a different state, and then I would move there, right? But this is an instance of, like, you already have the job. You just have to move here to do it. Like, I would move for that kind of situation, but I have to be, like, contacted and given the job. Like, they're given the job. Because there, it's a right, you know, it's, a, it's an entitlement. That's a guaranteed job, right? This is, this is the thing that Bernie Kratz dream about of like a guaranteed job instead of a guaranteed income. What a guaranteed job is a guaranteed income. But yeah, right. you do both because the disabled, the infirm, everyone should not have to work to live. But anyway, Jinju is living with his son after relocating. He said he does not miss having to build a fire to cook or depending on the uncertainties of farming to eat. Quoting him here, I can eat anything, anytime I want, he said. Life is better now. So, bit anecdotal, but <laughs> there you have it. Uh, this is also reminiscent of, I mean, this is Maoist policy since the beginning, where um, the Great Loop Forward, meaning the um, referring to the land reform, because when a socialist government... Takes power in an agrarian country, the first thing they need to do is land reform, which is break up large landowners and landlords, and uh, and distribute the land because land is wealth, you know. Land is the ability to feed yourself, and uh, in many villages, you only had maybe five people who owned all the land, and everyone else was just pretty much their serfs or slaves. So the big land reform was carried out. By sending, um, college graduates, say in, um, Shanghai and other large coastal cities where there was certain wealth from, you know, cause imperialists traded and built things that built things there. Uh, and they were sent to the countryside and the rest of the country to carry out the land reform, um, to organize people, the peasants there against the landlords. Yes. Into mobs <laughs> and redistribute the uh, other property. Because they had the government's backing to do all of that. But, uh, it didn't require sending the people's army out there. It was about sending the organizers to organize the peasants into their own, to be empowered to do things on their own behalf. It was, it's pretty interesting. Mostly because, say, these landowners don't have the state protecting them anymore. There's no constable or army going to come to protect them. Um, so you can actually do things you know, you can take charge yourself. Um, but this one okay. is not a long one here. But the, so it's just a short thing from, and this is from their um, CGTN, uh, which is not, not to be confused with CCTG, the Chinese owned outlet, the state apparatus. But it's uh basically it's a short article. Um, I don't have to read all of it, but the short version is, uh, at least on the UN side of things, that Ch- China is calling to drop the, all the sanctions that the U.S. and its allies have imposed on various countries. Um, they are killing people in, during the pandemic. It says, like, oh, no, we're allowing medicine, but we're not allowing PVE and other things to be shipped in various countries. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to severely affect all nations, in particular developing countries. The response to and recovery from COVID requires global solidarity and international cooperation. However, we continue to witness the application of unilateral coercive measures, which are contrary to the purpose and principles of the UN Charter, uh, multilateralism, and the basic norms of international relations. This is Chinese ambassador speaking to the UN. As they, its permanent representative to the UN, made the statement on behalf of countries including in alphabetical order Angola, Equatine, and Baruba, Bel- Belarus, Burundi, Cambodia, Cameroon, China, Cuba, DPRK, Equatorial Guinea, Etrinia, Iran, Laos, Myanmar, and Nambia, Nicaragua, Pakistan, Palestine, Russia, Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, South Sudan, Sudan, Suriname, Syria, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. All these countries have U.S. sanctions on them. And basically saying, for the sake of saving people from COVID and the spread of the disease further, kind of need to raise these sanctions. It also keeps people in poverty. Uh, Global Solidarity and International Cooperation are the most powerful weapons in fighting and overcoming COVID. Almost 20 years after the adoption of the Durban Declaration and the Program of Action, instances like the death of George Floyd and the shooting of Jacob Blake Continue to take place and vulnerable people continue to suffer or lose their lives for racism and police brutality. Such instances are a reminder that chronic and deep-rooted racial discrimination still exists. COVID mortality rate of minorities, in particular people of African descent, is disproportionately high in some countries, said Zhang, using uh, our own bullcrap uh, bull against us there. Yeah, and and that's just uh, just a summary of that. So what's the name of that book from The King of the Trolls, Michael?
3: All right, so this book is called Cannibal Trolls and um, Follow Stones, an Unwilling Student Handbook. So this book claims to be the end-all be-all for how to deal with trolls. And he uh, claims to identify all of the different types of trolls. And he says that bad faith actors online are trolls, and you deal with trolls by um Ignore. cannibalizing,
0: not them. ignoring them. No, it can't be ignoring. No, them. It, yeah,
3: no, he disagrees with the "don't feel feed the trolls" and asserts cannibal troll theory. Yeah, where uh,
0: give a give a quick. I, I I'm familiar with this a little bit. It was years ago that I encountered um so the categories, he, but
3: he has a Venn diagram to define trolls, and it starts out with at the top or not Venn diagram flow chart, and it goes. You disagree with someone, and then a diamond that says, "Do you have evidence for your view? If yes, present it." And then it goes to no. And basically saying that trolls do not have evidence for their view. And then do they have logical arguments for their views? No. Uh, They do not have any reason to think they're correct. That they don't have a fucking, or they don't have a brain or moral code. And that that's what makes a troll. Basically saying, first, in order to claim that someone's a troll, you have to say there's no evidence to back up their ideas and then reject all evidence presented, reject that they have a logical argument for their view, reject that they have any possibility of being correct, and reject that they have a brain or a moral code. And then they are a troll And you are allowed to engage in bad faith with a troll.
0: So it seems to be moral, um, equivalence there of like. But but see, that's like, so the purpose is just determining who you can basically, um, shit talk with. Not like. It seems
3: to be, yes. And that he basically says that, and that he has his political beliefs and that, they are that the political philosophy surrounding this philosophy mm. is rooted in America. What is it?
0: Oh, does did he, did he use it's, the phrase American exceptionalism or something? Well, it, let me just uh, outline my problems with uh, this line of thought. First, it's really essentialist, yeah. right? Then yeah. there's the, it's very procedural procedural. And if anyone deviates from this procedure, this outline they're basically written off as a troll when there's so many other possibilities. Someone could be confused or questioning. Um, like They don't have evidence for the belief. Most people don't have evidence for their belief, not on hand. Um, it is important to ask the question, what do you believe and why? And that's probably more useful. There's just so many more useful tools for determining whether, well, if someone's a good faith or not. That can usually be observed right away. And there are certain tells, you know, but then like once you determine someone's acting in bad faith, the, the next thing isn't, okay, now, now I can argue without any moral, uh, standing. No, you just stop. The answer should be a stop. Yeah. Now, sure. The, the thing about the internet is that a someone, a harasser can just keep harassing you, except there are yeah. tools to block. To unfriend, to get them out of your feed. And there are also the tools of regulating your feed to groups and pages and lock them out, right? Oh, but a harasser will just keep making sock accounts. Well, then this is an example of how social media is and can never really be a safe space slash controllable. Um, and if you can't control a space, then it's a space not worth having. And so the whole existence of troll culture is itself to me an indictment of like, the internet is the perfect technology to bring us all together. It's not seen. It is not changing our culture to be more cooperative. It's simply we call it reinforcing all of the toxic elements of our culture and economics. So we're running out. Uh, we're about out of time. Let me go yep. through the yep. housekeeping. Um, so thanks for that. Um, a little yeah, it's- discussion of trolling. But yeah, no, the cannibal it troll was- is, I mean, we're uh, uh, running, we're out of time, but there's, I know the cannibal troll is like the troll that trolls others, but then there's also like a bait troll where like you do something cr- so cringe that at least for a week you get the attention of all the trolls so that they're preoccupied yeah. and then you're basically giving like everyone a week break from their harassment. Mm. But the the whole discussion to me was... Wow, this is a terrible state of affairs. Maybe we need to do something a little bit more substantial than just discuss how do we cope with this,
3: right? <laughs> uh, yeah. The
0: social phenomenon. All right, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, we want your constructive feedback. Our email is three left show at gmail. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Mastodon via the Kogasekta secta. Um, Anarchist um, server. We're part of an independent community radio station. Please consider supporting them materially with a membership. at WCAALP. That's found at grandarts.org. Support us on Patreon, but I'm thinking of switching it to LeverPay, so I'll ignore that. Um, this episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps. A full archive of the podcast, along with show notes and sources, can be found at threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas of the thinking and the projects into practice yourself. Keep expanding your vocabulary to expand your thinking. Be well. Keep it rad. Keep waving the flags of the three lefts.